0: Recorded live. Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christa Gatney at Internet Radio. Today is Friday, July 24th, 2015. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel, and thank you for listening. Here we shall present Paul's epistle to the Galatians. And before doing so, we must establish The identity of the Galatians whom Paul was writing to, I've heard some crazy theories in this regard in um, or among certain identity Christians who insist that Paul was writing to the Gauls in France. That was crazy. There are crazier theories in in the mainstream, or at least sillier ones, even amongst um, mainstream academics, which we will Get into momentarily. The name Galatia at the time of Paul's ministry referred to either of two things. First, the word referred to the kingdom of the Galatahi, which was established in Anatolia, modern Turkey, unfortunately, in the third century BC. Or secondly, it may have referred to the Roman province of Galatia, which incorporated three ancient kingdoms, Ligaonia, Phrygia, and Galatia. Considering only the use of the term Galatia in reference to the Roman province, there have long been academic debates disputing whether Paul had written to the northern Galatians of the province which refers to the somewhat Hellenized Galatahi of the ancient kingdom, or to the southern Galatians, which more numerously included the Greeks and Hellenized Lycaonians of the larger cities. But the so-called scholars who debate on these terms do not even realize that Luke did not use the term Galatia in reference to the Roman province, but only as it was originally used in reference to the ancient kingdom. And that was only the northern part of the Roman province. In his accounts in the book of Acts, in chapters 13 through 16, Luke specifically mentions the cities Derbe, Lystra, and Iconium, several times each. And many commentators imagine that it was the Christians in these cities who were the recipients of Paul's epistle to the Galatians, because these cities were all in the southern portion of the Roman province of Galatia. But Derbe, Lystra and Iconium were cities of the ancient kingdom of Lycaonia, which the Romans had later incorporated into what they called the province of Galatia. And in Acts 14.6, Lystra and Derbe are called cities of Lycaonia, and then in Acts 14.11, we see a reference to the speech of Lycaonia. And the ancient Lycaonians were properly neither Greeks nor Galatians, although they had been Hellenized to a great degree. Then later, in Acts 16, verse six, Luke mentioned Phrygia and the region of Galatia as being separate places, and the ancient kingdom of Phrygia, like Lycaonia, had also been incorporated into the Roman province of Galatia. Then in Acts 18.23, Luke once again describes Paul as having traveled through the country of Galatia and Phrygia, where he had strengthened all the disciples. So we see that in Luke's writing, Phrygia and Galatia are clearly distinguished from one another and also from the cities of Derbe Iconium and Lystra mentioned in verses 1 and 2 of Acts 14 which were in Lycaonia. Therefore It is quite certain that from Luke's account in Acts, where the Apostle mentions Galatia, where the Apostles mention Galatia, they do not mean the Roman province. But instead, they mean the ancient kingdom of Galatia as they distinguish it from the other parts of the province, which are Phrygia and Lycaonia. If the Roman province were meant where the term Galatia was used, then these distinctions would not have been made. Therefore, we see that the recipients of Paul's epistle to the Galatians are certainly those unspecified Christian assemblies which had indeed existed throughout the ancient kingdom of the Galatahi. Now that we have illustrated this, we can discuss who these Galatahi were, or who these Galatians were. Much of this is going to be based... Much of this discussion concerning the identity and origins of the Galatahi is documented in our classical records and German origins essays, which have been presented relatively recently here at Christagenia. The Galatahi, or Galatians, if you will, are often and somewhat wrongly identified as Celts. The name Celt did not originally belong to the Galatahi. The Greek geographer Strabo had discussed the confusion of the Celts and the Galatahi and how the term Celt did not apply to the Galatahi originally. That's in Book 4, Chapter 1, Paragraph 14 of his Geography. The Greek historian, Diodorus Siculus, corroborating what Strabo said. Diodorus Siculus had said, and now it will be useful to draw a distinction which is unknown to many. And he went on to explain how the name of the Celts originally applied to a people distinct from the Galatahi, but that the Romans had called the Celts Gauls the Roman equivalent to the word Galatahi, as well as those Galatahi who were later called Germans. Originally, they were also called Gauls. That's in Diodorus' Library of History, Book 5, Chapter 32. So it is evident that Celts and Galatahi were at one time distinct terms for somewhat distinct people. Herodotus knew of the Celts, but he did not ever use the term Galatahi. However, at an early time, the terms became synonymous to the Greeks and Romans. The 2nd century Greek historian Polybius often used the terms Celts and Galatahi synonymously, even in the same paragraphs of his histories. Throughout his own writings, even Deodorus Siculus, who understood the original distinction of the two terms, even he used the two terms interchangeably and also often in the same paragraphs, while on other occasions he distinguishes between them. Diodorus never used the term German, but called the tribes that dwelt east of the Rhine, some of which he mentioned by their individual names. He called them Galatahi also, even where he tells of Julius Caesar's conquests in that area. The Germanic tribes dwelling north of the Danube were, by all of the later Greek writers, all originally called Galatahi. But even earlier, Herodotus had identified these people as Scythians. Sometimes they were identified as Saka or Sakins. The name Galatahi seems to come into existence in the 4th century B.C. The earliest surviving literature containing the word is found in the writings of Aristotle. The word Galatahi seems to come from the Greek word gala, or milk, and galatas, meaning of milk. The earlier Greek poets, such as Homer, poked fun at the Scythians in the north for being milk eaters and even mare milkers. Stabo had written that the Germans, who though they vary slightly from the Celtic stock, in that they are wilder, taller, and have yellower hair, are in all other respects similar for build habits and modes of life, they are such, as I have said, the Celti are. And I also think that it was for this reason that the Romans assigned to them the name Germani, although as though they wished to indicate thereby that they were genuine Galatahi. For in the language of the Romans, Germani or Germani means Genuine. Strabo's Geography, Book 7, Chapter 1. Diodorus Siculus describes the Galatahi who dwelt east of the Rhine as tall and blonde with very white skin, and says that they drank beer made from barley and the water in which they washed their honeycombs, which seems to describe an ancient form of mead. These Galatahi used chariots, and wore what seems to have been a type of tartan. After he had informed us of the distinction between Celts and the Galatahi, Diodorus Siculus tells of the Galatahi that some men say it was they who in ancient times overran all Asia and were called Cimmerians, time having slightly corrupted the word into the name of Timbrians as they are now called. And he goes on to relate how these tribes of the Galatahi had once captured Rome, as Livy and other historians also relate had happened about 390 B.C., and how they had later plundered the Temple of Delphi in Greece. Afterwards, certain tribes of the Galatahi, having invaded Anatolia, were defeated by Attalus I, the king of Pergamus, and negotiated to settle the land which became known as Galatia in Anatolia. It was actually a portion of the ancient kingdom of Phrygia. And it was later, as we've seen in Acts chapters 14 and 16 and 18, distinguished from Phrygia, the the portion of the ancient kingdom which, ostensibly, certain people of the Phrygians had retained. These Galatians became mixed with the Greeks, as Diodorus tells us, and so they were called Greco-Gauls, and it is these Galatians for whom Paul wrote. This epistle. Didorus then adds of the Galatahi, and who, as their last accomplishment, had destroyed many large Roman armies, referring not to the Galatians of Anatolia, but to the Roman wars with the Cimbri. In the Loeb Library, Loeb Classical Library edition of Diodorus Siculus, translated by C.H. Oldfather. A footnote at this passage reads, Much has been written to show that the Germanic tribe of the Cimbrians, who threatened Italy shortly before 100 B.C., which is what Diodorus was writing about, were belated Cimmerians who first entered Asia Minor in the 7th century B.C. And those are not the Galatahi. Those are the Cimmerians who came from the east and crossed Asia Minor and entered into Europe. The Cimbri, after several astounding victories, were defeated by the Romans about 101 B.C. Strabo also tells us that they were the Chimerians, and later called them Germans, who with another kindred time, tribe called the Sugambri were the best known of the German tribes. As the Germanic, which is Galatahi, Cimmerian, or Scythian, as the Germanic tribes grew and divided, and the Greeks and Romans became more intimately knowledgeable of them, they were referred to less generally by more specific tribal names. For instance, Strabo later enumerates the tribes of those Galatahi who settled in Phrygia, and he calls them the Trochmi, The Telistobogi, which are named after their leaders, whereas the third, the Tectosagas, is named after the tribe in Celtica, and by Celtica he means the lands west of the Rhine in modern-day France. The tectosagas, and notice that word tectosagas, S-A-G-A-S. In Greek, the presence of the saga syllable, S-A-G-A, which relates to the sake or Saxons, and which is present in many personal names and tribal names related to the Scythian tribes. Masagedae is another one. Mas, M-A-S, Sagate, S-A-G-A-T-A-E. The Tecto Sagas had also occupied a district near the Pyrenees Mountains and were said by Strabo to be a division of the Volcae. Of the Trochne, Strabo says that this tribe, settled near Pontus and Cappadocia, was the most powerful of the parts occupied by the Galatians, meaning the parts of Anatolia, these Galatians of Paul's epistle. While the Galatians, or Galatahi, of Anatolia were said to have had the same language as those of Celtica, which was still in use as late as the time of Jerome, and Jerome noted it in his own commentary on St. Paul's letter to the Galatians, the Celts of Galatia did not use their own language as a medium for written Literary composition, says David Rankin in the book Celts and the Classical World, and he is correct. And this is verified by Strabo, where he explained that the Galatati of what is now France had been learning to write in Greek from the Phocians of Massalia, Massalia being a Greek settlement on the coast of southern France, on the Mediterranean. It's the ancient name of what we now call Marseille. Notice that Rankin, author of the book Celts in the Classical World, also took it for granted that the Galatians were Celts, where Strabo explains the origin of the word for German as coming from the Roman belief that the Galataki were genuine Galatahi, which is why they were called Germanus or Germania. In his translation of Strabo, in the Loeb Classical Library, H. L. Jones, Horace Jones, offers a footnote which which says in part, so also Julius Caesar, Tacitus." Pliny and the ancient writers in general regarded the Germans as Celts and then put Gauls in parentheses. And this confusion seems to have come because the Galatahi had been migrating into Celtica, which is the name of the land west of the Rhine, as it was known by the much earlier Greek historian Herodotus. The Galatahi had been migrating into Celtica since long before the time that the Romans had conquered what they later called Gaul, which is that same land west of the Rhine, modern France for the most part. The lands west of the Rhine and south of the Alps are much more inviting to settlement than those to the north and the east. And even up to the time of Julius Caesar, the Germanic tribes were forcing their way into them. For instance, in the Gallic Wars, Caesar complains that in a few years, all the natives, those who were already settled in Gaul, west of the Rhine, will have been driven forth from the borders of Gaul, and all the Germans will have crossed the Rhine. But there can be no comparison between the Gallic and German territory, the Gallic territory being a lot better. Bearing in mind that the distinction between Gaul and German in Caesar's writing is a Roman one, and that they were all originally called Galatahi, the Celts of Celtica were descended from Phoenicians and other tribes which preceded them into Western Europe and who had also settled Iberia, the British Isles, and the coasts of the Northwest. The Galatahi had descended from the Cimmerians, and the Cimmerians were the Bit Qumri of the ancient Assyrian inscriptions whom the Persians had called Sacae, and whom the Greeks originally called Scythians, but had later called Galatahi. The Cimmerians were the first wave of the Scythians, who were later called Galatahi. The Galatahi were therefore related to the Celts, and the Romans labeled them all as Gauls. And that's where the confusion comes in, because Galatahi in Celtica are confused for Celts, and then the name Celts is extended east to all the Galatahi, but it doesn't properly belong to any of the Galatahi. The Galatahi were also related to the later Germanic invaders of Europe, which were the Saxons, the Goths, and others who had descended from the original Skittines of Asia, and primarily the Saka and the Massagetae. So in a sense, the Galatians were Celts, and they were Gauls, but they were also Germans. Before the Romans, began calling the Galatahi of Germany, Germans. So in summary, the Galatians of Paul's epistle were primarily Galatahi. And they were descended from the ancient Cimmerians, who were in turn descended from the ancient Israelites taken into captivity by the Assyrians before the middle of the 7th century B.C. While most of these had migrated into Europe, these rather adventurous tribes of the Galatahi had crossed the Danube and invaded Greece in the 3rd century B.C., and were ultimately settled in a part of Phrygia, which had then become known as Galatia. They had also spread into parts of Phrygia and Lycaonia, and many of them had mixed themselves with the Greeks. Then, when the Romans came into the area and made their own political boundaries, they incorporated all three kingdoms into a province which they had called Galatia. However, as we have seen, the apostles continued to use the original names to distinguish the various districts. So, when the apostles write Galatia, as we see, in the book of Acts, it refers to the district in the north of the Roman province, which was settled mostly by the Galatahi. An understanding of this historical background is crucial to understanding the context of Paul's epistle. For instance, how could one perceive what Paul had meant where he said to the Galatians that Christ had come to redeem them that were under the law? And for that reason, that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ. How can one perceive what Paul meant except by knowing that the Galatahi were of the ancient children of Israel. Any other interpretation of these passages is an attempt to make the word of God into a lie, when in fact these Galatians were indeed of the seed of the Abraham. Now that we know to whom the epistle was written, we may discuss when it may have been written. In Acts chapter 18, near the end of Paul's year and a half ministry in Corinth, we read, And Paul, after this, tarried there yet a good while, and then took his leave of the brethren, and sailed thence into Syria. And with him, Priscilla and Aquila, having his head shorn in Cancria, for he had a vow, and he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered into the synagogue and reasoned with the Judeans. When they desired him to tarry longer, a longer time with them, he consented not, but bade them farewell. Saying, I must, by all means, keep this feast that comes in Jerusalem, but I will return again unto you, if God will. And he sailed from Ephesus. And when he landed at Caesarea, and gone up, and saluted the church, he went down to Antioch. And after he had spent some time there, he departed, and went over all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. So Paul spent a considerable time in Corinth, a year and a half. And when he sailed to Syria, along with Priscilla and Aquila, and then he ended up in Ephesus, But we are not certain whether he had actually gotten to Syria or not before ending up in Ephesus. It seems that he didn't, but we don't know, because Acts verse 18, chapter 18, is quite ambiguous. However, it seems that he and his party had only stopped in Ephesus, where he had left Priscilla and Aquila on the way to Syria. For that reason, as we see in verses 20 and 21. He would not stay in Ephesus, but hurriedly sailed for Caesarea. From there it says that he had gone up and saluted the church, which seems to indicate that he had stopped in Jerusalem at this time, which is consistent with his wanting to get there for a feast. And then it says he went down to Antioch. This journey to Antioch seems to be where Paul had had his final meeting with Peter, which is described in Galatians chapter 2. The epistle to the Galatians could not have been written before that final meeting. Paul visited the Galatians soon after that meeting, which is evident in Acts 18:23 and his epistle reflects an anticipation to visit them in its fourth chapter in verses 18 and 20. So Galatians was most likely written before Paul arrived in Galatia in Acts chapter 18 verse 23, but after meeting Peter in Antioch which is recorded in Acts 18.22. And this is what Paul seems to be referring to in Galatians chapter 2, verse 11. Now, some may protest that the meeting with Peter in Antioch may have taken place during the events which are recorded in Acts chapters 14 and 15. However, that cannot be the case. In Acts chapter 15, A dispute is recorded which arose between Paul and Barnabas and certain men which came down from Judea who taught the brethren. As it is described in the first verse of Acts 15, where there is no mention of Peter until after we read in Acts chapter 15, verse 2, that they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. Since Peter certainly was one of the apostles and elders, it is evident that he was in Jerusalem at this time and not in Antioch with Paul. We will discuss this further when we present Galatians chapter 2. With this, we shall commence with Galatians chapter 1. Paul, an ambassador, not from men nor through man, but through Yahshua Christ, even Yahweh the Father, who has raised him from the dead, and all of the brethren with me, to the Assemblies of Galatia. Where in the Christianity and New Testament we read even Yahweh the Father? And we do this in many places. Most translations have God and God the Father. This is because we perceive Christ to be one with God the Father. As Paul also instructs us elsewhere, that there is one God, one Lord, and one Christ, who is the fullness of the divinity bodily. Colossians chapter 2, Ephesians chapter 5, Therefore, since there is one Lord, or one Kurios, and curios is a title which is applied to both God and Christ, then God and Christ must be one curios, and we read the two phrases that are connected with the conjunction as a Hebrew parallelism. The curios title is applied to Christ in the next verse of this epistle. Understanding the conjunction in this manner, we express agreement that God the Son and God the Father, are indeed one and the same God. Here Paul asserts that his apostleship comes from God himself, as the book of Acts has recorded. Note that unlike his other letters, here Paul writes to the assemblies of the region, not the Roman province, but the ancient kingdom of Galatia, using the word for assembly in the plural. In other letters, even though he did mention in one place the assemblies of the Cahia, in other letters he addressed either the singular assembly of a city or, quite often, the saints in a given place collectively. Of course, this signifies that there are assemblies, plural, throughout the region, none of which are ever specifically mentioned in the book of Acts. However, it is clear in Acts that Paul conducted a ministry in Galatia on at least two occasions in chapters 16 and 18. And he had also mentioned the assemblies there in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, where in that verse, or in that chapter, I should say, he discusses instructions which he had given assemblies of Galatia. It is also evident, concerning the um, collection for the saints, it is also evident that there was at least one other and now lost epistle to the Galatians and we can determine that from Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Otherwise, how would they have those instructions. Galatians chapter 1, verse 3. Favor to you and peace from Yahweh the Father and our Prince, Yahshua Christ. And here some manuscripts have peace from Yahweh our Father and Prince Yahshua Christ. Paul fulfills the prophecy in Isaiah chapter 52 concerning those who deliver the gospel of God. Where it says, how beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation, that saith unto Zion, thy God reigns. Verse 4, who gave himself on behalf of our errors or sins in order that he should deliver us from the present wicked age in accordance with the will of Yahweh our Father, to whom is honor for eternity truly. The Greek phrase is literally the will of our God and Father. The conjunction is often used for emphasis. And although we do not like leaving any word unrendered, here it seems sensible to do so, since we endeavor to restore the Hebrew name of our God to Scripture. The word eternity at the end of verse five represents a phrase which is literally for the ages of the ages. To whom is honor for the ages of the ages? Truly, or Amen. Here in his introduction, Paul is stressing the fact that Christ had given himself for sins, meaning those sins of the Galatians as well as those sins of his own, and for all Israel, of course, because this epistle. Was written to address the Judaizers who had crept in among the Galatians, and we will see that at length in the later chapters, who were teaching them that they had to be circumcised and that they had to keep other rituals of the law for their salvation. Now, this becomes clear as we proceed through the epistle, especially in. The beginning of chapter 2, where Paul discusses privily introduced false brethren, such who infiltrate to spy out our freedom, which we have in Christ Joshua, in order that they may enslave us. And they did the Roman Catholic sacraments later on in history. Verse 6, I am astonished seeing that so quickly you are changed from he who has been calling you in favor of the anointed to another good message or to another gospel, which is no other, except there are some who are agitating you and wish to pervert the good message of the anointed. The 3rd century papyrus, P46, and the Codex Coislinianus want the phrase rendered of the anointed in verse six. The Codex Beze adds a word, interpolates the word for Yahshua or Yesus, where we would instead have to write of Yahshua Christ, the favor of Yahshua Christ. The favor of the anointed is the grace granted by God to the children of Israel in the remission of their sins, although the phrase may have also been translated as favor of Christ. The term for anointed is often used of the children of Israel collectively, and this is evident in many places where Paul used the term Christos, where it cannot be possibly be a reference to Christ himself. One such place is in 1 Timothy, chapter 5, in verse 11, where Paul advises Timothy about accepting women into the service of the Christian assembly, and he says, But younger widows you must excuse, for when they behave wantonly towards the anointed they desire to marry. Younger women having sexual desires would act wantonly towards the men of the assembly, towards the anointed, and not towards Christ himself. They're not acting wantonly towards Christ by exercising their sexual ambitions in the Christian assembly. They're acting wantonly towards the men of the assembly, towards the anointed. Therefore, in that passage, we have translated Christos as anointed, as it refers to the group and not simply to Christ. Another place is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 26, where Paul speaks of Moses and says, By faith, Moses, becoming full grown, refutes to be called a son of the daughter of Pharaoh, rather preferring to be mistreated with the people of Yahweh than to have the temporary rewards of error, having esteemed. The reproach of the anointed greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, since he had regard for the reward. It was the people of Israel, the anointed collectively, who were suffering reproach in slavery in Egypt. It was not Christ himself. One other place where Paul clearly uses the word Christos to describe the children of Israel collectively is in 1 Corinthians 12:12, 12, 12, where he says, "For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, being many, are one body, so also the anointed." There in that passage, Christos certainly refers to the children of Israel collectively, as Christ, by himself, is not." the many members of the body. Yet another place is found in one Corinthians chapter one, verse thirteen, where Paul is talking about divisions among the assembly and diverse members who were claiming to be followers of the different apostles. And he asks, have the anointed been divided? Of course, he was not asking whether Christ had been divided, since Christ was not the subject of the discourse. It is clear in many of Paul's statements that using the term Christos, he uses it in reference to the Christian children of Israel collectively, rather than as a reference solely to Christ himself. Here we have just presented four witnesses to this fact. That the children of Israel collectively are the anointed of Yahweh is evident in Psalm 28, and I will read from verse 8. Yahweh is their strength, and he is the saving strength of his anointed. Save thy people, and bless thy inheritance. Feed them also and lift them up forever. The people are the anointed. It is also evident in Lamentations chapter 4, verse 20, the breath of our nostrils, the anointed of Yahweh, was taken in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. It is also evident that the anointed are collectively the people of God. In Habakkuk chapter 3, Thou wentest forth for the salvation of thy people, even for the salvation with thine anointed. Thou woundest the head out of the house of the wicked by discovering the foundation unto the neck. It is also evident in Isaiah chapter 10, Therefore thus saith Yahweh, God of hosts, O my people that dwellest in Zion. Be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite thee with a rod, and shall lift up his staff against thee, after the manner of Egypt. For yet a very little while, and the indignation shall cease, and mine anger in their destruction. And it shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder, and his yoke from off thy neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed, because of the anointing, because Yahweh anointed his people Israel. It is also evident in 1 John chapter 2, where the apostle says, But the anointing which you have received of him abides in you, and you need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teaches you of all things, the truth is, and is truth, and is no lie, and even as it is taught you, you shall abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may have confidence, and not be ashamed before him at his coming. From Deuteronomy chapter 28, from verse 9, Yahweh shall establish thee, a holy people unto himself, as he has sworn unto thee, if thou shalt keep the commandments of Yahweh thy God, and walk in his ways, and all the people of the earth shall see that thou art called by the name of Yahweh, and they shall be afraid of thee. As he is Christ, therefore his people are Christians, the anointed people. Here we have provided much of the evidence that his people collectively are his anointed. In addition to his Messiah being the anointed one. In both Hebrew, the word "chan" and Greek, the word charis The word commonly translated, or I should say the words, one for the Old Testament and one for the New. Commonly translated as grace mean primarily mean favor. And the favor of God was also a matter of pro- a matter of prophecy for the children of Israel. In Jeremiah chapter 31, the same prophecy which promises the children of Israel a new covenant, we read, at the same time, saith Yahweh. I will be God of all the families of the earth, I'm sorry, of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith Yahweh, the people which were left of the sword, meaning the children of Israel, which escaped captivity, and that is illustrated in the verse, the people which were left of the sword found grace in the wilderness. Even Israel, when I went to cause him to rest. The subject of grace is a subject of prophecy for the children of Israel. Likewise, we read in Psalm 102, But thou, O Yahweh, shalt endure forever and thy remembrance unto all generations. Thou shalt arise and have mercy upon Zion, for the time to favor her, yeah, the set time is come. The time to favor Zion. For thy servant shall take pleasure in her stones, and favor the dust thereof. So the nation shall fear the name of Yahweh, and all the kings of the earth thy glory. When Yahweh shall build up Zion, he shall appear in his glory. The favor of Yahweh God belongs to the anointed, which are the children of Israel collectively. And the gospel of God belongs to the anointed as well, meaning that it belongs to the children of Israel. God did not create a gospel, a word which means good message, for himself. He created the gospel for his people. The gospel of God also belongs to the anointed, meaning to the anointed people of God. As the prophet asks, Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of Yahweh revealed? In Isaiah 53, so does the apostle where he says, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who has believed our report? So then, faith comes by hearing, and by hearing the word of God. But I say, had they not heard? Yes, verily their sound went out into all the earth and their words unto the ends of the world, Romans chapter 10, saying our report and saying their words and their sound. The gospel belongs to all of the children of Israel who have accepted it. The language in the translation of the Christianity New Testament. The renderings which we chose talking about the favor of the anointed, the gospel of the anointed is both the literal translation of the Greek and expresses the notion that the favor, the grace, the gospel belong to the children of Israel collectively, not only to Christ. The mainstream churches teach that these things only belong to Christ. And then anyone of anywhere, of any nation or race whatsoever who claim to accept Christ can have a part in these things. That is contrary to the prophecies in the word of God. These things belong to the children of Israel collectively, to the anointed of God. Verse 8, but even if we, or a messenger from heaven, should announce a good message to you contrary to that which we have announced to you, he must be accursed. Just as we have said before, now also I say again, if anyone brings you a good message or a gospel contrary to that which you have received, he must be accursed. Paul is not promoting himself here, but rather he is warning about the inevitable result from disobeying the gospel of God. From Deuteronomy chapter 27, we read, Cursed be he that confirms not all the words of this law to do them, and all the people shall say, Amen. Paul quotes that same passage. Of Deuteronomy chapter 27 here in Galatians chapter 3 in his argument against the Judaizers we may also read from Deuteronomy chapter 27 from verse 18 cursed be he that makes the blind to wander out of the way and all the people shall say amen according to Isaiah it was the purpose of the gospel to open the blind eyes. And therefore Christ had warned, can the blind lead the blind? Shall they not both fall into the ditch and cursed be they? Disobedience to Christ is a failure to do all of the words in the law of Moses. Yes, it is. And thereby disobedience to Christ is to be accursed after Deuteronomy chapter 27 verse 26. How could that be? The part of the law which concerns Christ is found in Deuteronomy chapter 18 where it says, Yahweh thy God will raise up unto thee a prophet from the midst of thee of thy brethren like unto me. Unto him shall you hearken. And Yahweh said unto me, They have well spoken that which they have spoken. I will raise them up a prophet from among their brethren, like unto thee, and will put my words in his mouth. And he shall speak unto them all that I shall command him. And it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. Christ himself asserted that he was this prophet. For instance, in John chapter 6, from verse 46, For had you believed Moses you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? Therefore, not believing what had been written about the Christ or what Christ had said according to the law, men exhibit themselves to be accursed. So Paul is simply citing the law. Another more metaphorical aspect of the law of Moses, where we see a prophecy of Christ, is in Exodus chapter 23, where it says, Behold, I sent an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, Then I will be an enemy unto thine enemies, and an adversary unto thine adversaries. Now this was an immediate prophecy of Joshua, the son of Nun, who had replaced Moses temporally. However, another Joshua, one having the same Hebrew given name, is Joshua Christ, who replaced the law of Moses... In the dispensation of God. And of course Yahweh's name is in him, since the name Yahshua means Yahweh saves. Matthew chapter one, verse twenty one reveals that meaning where he says, And she shall bring forth a son, and call and thou shalt call his name Yahshua, for he shall save his people from their sins. It is Christ who is prophesied as that prophet in the law in more ways than one. So, disobeying Christ is disobeying the law, and for disobeying the law, the children of Israel are accursed. From Genesis chapter 22, this is a little esoteric, but it's nevertheless true. And Isaac spoke unto Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, Behold the wood and the fire but where is the lamb for a burnt offering and and abraham said my son god will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering so they went both of them together john the baptist had proclaimed this when he saw the Christ, Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Verse 10, Galatians chapter 1. Now therefore, do I persuade men or Yahweh, or do I seek to please men? Yet, if I were pleasing to men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Here Paul will seek to establish his credentials in his knowledge of the Scripture and his authority in the gospel of God. This is because he is about to argue against the Judaizers who have tried to convince these Galatians that they must look to the circumcision and the works of the law for justification, where by continuing such things, One is, in essence, denying the sacrifice and the very purpose of Christ. And therefore, being disobedient to Christ, according to the law, one is accursed, as Paul says. Verse 11, now I point out, or make known, I point out to you, brethren, the good message which is announced by me that it is not according to man, neither from man have I received it, nor have I been taught, but through a revelation of Yahshua Christ. In Acts chapters 9, 22 and 26, we see elements of Paul's conversion each time it is recounted. In Acts 9, we have a record of the words of Joshua Christ, to Hananias, who heals Paul's eyes and baptizes him, where we read, But the prince said to him, Go, meaning to Hananias, Go, for he is a chosen vessel by me, who is to bear my name before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel. For I shall indicate to him how much it is necessary for him to suffer on behalf of my name. Then in Acts chapter 22, Paul informs us that Christ had said to him, Go, because I shall send you off to distant nations. Then in Acts chapter 26, Paul attests, And now, for the hope of the promise, having been made by Yahweh to our fathers, I stand being judged, for which our twelve tribes, serving in earnest night and day, hope to attain, concerning which hope I am charged by the Judeans. And Paul also relates more of what Joshua had said to him, where we read, For this have I appeared to you, for you to be a chosen assistant and witness, both of the things you have seen by me and of the things I shall reveal to you taking you out from among the people and from among the nations to whom I send you, to open their eyes for which to turn them from darkness to light and from the authority of the adversary to Yahweh for them to receive a remission of errors and a portion with those being sanctified by the faith which is in me we may not have a complete record of exactly what Joshua Christ had revealed to Paul of Tarsus through the revelation which Paul mentions here. But considering all of these things which Paul had attested to, we see that Paul's understanding of the promise to the twelve tribes, the testimony that he was to bring to the nations and kings of the sons of Israel, and the nations to whom he was sent for the remission of their sins. All these ideas are all intrinsically connected. Paul himself has told us elsewhere that without law, sin was not accounted, and therefore need not have been forgiven. These Galatians, once having had the law for their schoolmaster, as Paul attests later in this epistle, must have descended from the dispersions of the ancient Israelites of the captivities. It is these things concerning the identity of the ancient Israelites for which Paul must have received his revelation. Verse 13. For you have heard of my conduct at one time in Judaism, that I had exceedingly persecuted the assembly of Yahweh and had endeavored to destroy it. The last verb in this verse is the Greek word porseo. It's also found in this same context in verse 23 of this chapter of Galatians and in Acts chapter 9 in verse 21. And it's defined by Liddell and Scott as to destroy, ravage, waste, or plunder. But in the present and imperfect perfect tenses, they define it as to endeavor to destroy, to try to destroy, which is what Paul is saying here, where the King James Version has wasted and destroyed at verse 23, Paul did not manage to distort the assembly of Christ, but he certainly endeavored to do so. We read at the beginning of Acts chapter 8, after the stoning of Stephen, and Saulus, Paul's other name, not his first name, his other name, and Saulus was consenting to his death. And there came in that day a great persecution upon the assembly at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the lands of Judea and Samaria, except the, the apostles. And pious men retrieved Stephanus, and held a great mourning for him, his body then solace outraged the assembly entering into each of the houses dragging away men and women he delivered them into the prison so then those who were scattered went through announcing the good message of the word then after the account of philip and peter with simon magus we read at the beginning of acts chapter nine and solace still breathing threats even of murder To the students of the prince, going forth to the high priest, requested letters from him to Damascus, to the assembly halls, that if anyone should be found being of the way, both men and women, being bound, he would bring them to Jerusalem. Paul continues, in relation to this, by referring to the trusted position he had obtained from the high priests and the officers of the temple, and Paul writes in Galatians 1.14, and had advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries within my race, being a more excessive emulator of the traditions of my fathers. And this is such a telling verse. Galatians 1.14. This verse tells a whole story. The word for contemporaries. The word is, well, it's a tongue twister, right? Helikiotes, Strong's number 49.15. For sun heliciotes, the King James Version has equals. But specifically, the word refers to men who are of the same age. It's not simply equals. It's men of the same age. Therefore, in the Christianian New Testament, it is contemporaries. Paul's use of such a word along with another phrase, mou, which we interpret to mean within my race. Gene, or genai, being the dated case form of the Greek word genos, helps to exhibit first that the word genos does not refer to a generation, as in a group of people living at the same time. If genos referred to a group of people living at the same time, then Paul is being very redundant here because soon elikiotes refers to men of the same age. So genos cannot mean a generation in the sense of a group of people living at the same time. It simply can't. Here for the phrase, for the word genos, the King James Version has nation. For the phrase ento mu or genai mu, the King James Version has in my own nation rather than within my race, which is the way the Christian New Testament has it. The Greek word genos is primarily race, stock, or family. And while it may, in some contexts, be interpreted as nation in that sense, the word for nation is properly ethnos. The rendering of the phrase in the King James Version, in my own nation, is misleading because nation is often misunderstood as a geographical entity, where ganos, in genos, the meaning is clearly racial or genetic and cannot possibly be geographical. The King James Version pulls a bait and switch here, which leads to further misinterpretation of the passage. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, in verse 26, Paul uses this same word, genos, in relation to those of his own race or tribe, or, as the King James Version has it, countrymen, in distinction to those of other nations, where ethnos appears in the very same verse. Furthermore, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 5, denos appears in the phrase that the King James Version reads as Stock of Israel, so genos, is stock, referring to the particular race of the Israelites. Therefore, we must read the word in a similar sense here, and it reveals something which Paul had explicitly taught in Romans chapter 9 and elsewhere. Here, Paul says, many contemporaries. He advanced in Judaism beyond many of the men of his own age within his race. Paul's use of this term, in this sense here, reveals that there were diverse races. In Judaism. Otherwise, why would Paul say that he had advanced in Judaism beyond many contemporaries within my race? The conclusion we must draw here is that Paul is indicating that there is more than one race in Judaism. With that, we must understand that Judaism had, by Paul's time, become something other than it was supposed to be, as it is explained in the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament religion is only for one race, as Paul uses the term in Philippians 3, five. It was only for the stock of Israel. Examining Paul's statement, indicating that there is more than one race in Judaism. We must ask ourselves just who the other races in Judaism may be, how they got there, and why the Old Covenant, which demands that Israel be a separate people, was transgressed among this remnant in Jerusalem. Because in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, converts from the other races were not accepted under any circumstances, which we see in Ezra chapter 10, verses 1 through 3. Once we understand Paul's analogy, between Jacob and Esau, in Romans chapter 9, where He makes a distinction between the true Israelites who are in Judaism and the Edomites who are in Judaism. And the vessels of mercy as opposed to the vessels of destruction. In comparison, We must understand this analogy in comparison with the histories of Flavius Josephus, which inform us that over 150 years before this time, the Edomites were all converted to Judaism. Only then can we properly understand how Paul can infer that there was more than one race in Judaism the histories of Josephus are very detailed and realistic and can be proven to be entirely reliable, where he describes in Antiquities Book 13 from line 257 and again from line 393, how the Judeans at Jerusalem under John Hyrcanus and again under Alexander Janus, had gone out and conquered all of the Canaanite and Edomite cities of Palestine and had forced all of the inhabitants to be circumcised and to adopt the religion of Judea, which only then could fairly be called Judaism. Because it certainly was no longer the path of the Old Testament Israelites. Josephus tells us in four places in his writings that Herod, who became the king at the time of Christ, was an Edomite through the side of his mother as well as the side of his father. All of Herod's descendants were therefore Edomites. And it can be established that once the Edomites had gained control of the kingdom under Herod, they also filled many of its offices, especially in the temple and in the ranks of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Elsewhere in his histories, Josephus, Tells us explicitly that only the Essenes, the third major religious sect in Judea, only the Essenes were Judah by birth, which also indicates that many of those of the other sects were not Judah at all. In fact, it can even be demonstrated that the Sadducees were primarily, if not exclusively, Edomites. And that Sadducees had filled the office of high priest for nearly all of the last century of the history of the temple. For that reason, Christ had told those who opposed him in Jerusalem but you believe not because you are not of my sheep as i said unto you so the so-called jews those judeans who had rejected christ were indeed edomites the judeans who followed christ were the true israelites of judea and they were never called jews but the Germanic Galatahi were indeed a part of the lost sheep of the house of Israel for whom Christ had come. This was the meaning of the gospel according to Paul of Tarsus, and it was obscured and lay dormant by the time of the establishment of official Christianity in Rome. Ostensibly, because this was the gospel that was persecuted by the Jews, and it is still persecuted today. It was more than one race in Judaism, both Paul in Romans chapter 9 and Flavius Josephus in Antiquities book 13. Fully inform us, that that other race in Judaism were the Edomites, today's Jews. Galatians 1.15 But when it pleased Yahweh, who selected, or who separated, who selected me from my mother's womb and called me through his favor, From Jeremiah chapter 1, we see that the ancient prophet had the same attitude and understanding concerning his own work and destiny, where he says, Then the word of Yahweh came unto me, saying, Before I formed thee in the belly, I knew thee. And before thou camest forth out of the womb, I sanctified thee, and I ordained thee a prophet unto the nations. Of course, the nations of Jeremiah are the same nations of Paul of Tarsus, the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. Verse 16, to reveal his son by me, that I announce him among the nations. I did not immediately confer with flesh and blood Nor had I gone up to Jerusalem, to those who were ambassadors before me. Rather, I departed into Arabia, and then again returned to Damascus. We do not see all of these details as the account of Paul's conversion is recorded in Acts chapter 9 where we may read in part. And Ananias went his way, and entered into the house, and putting his hands on him, said, Brother Saul, the Lord, even Jesus, that appeared unto thee in the way, as thou camest, has sent me, that thou mightest receive thy sight, and be filled with the Holy Ghost. And immediately there fell from his eyes, as it had been scales, and he received sight forthwith, and arose and was baptized. And when he had received me, he was strengthened. Then Saul was certain days with the disciples which were at Damascus. There is no record of Paul's having been in Arabia in Acts 9.19, where we may expect to find it. However, the verse numbering and the paragraph layouts are not Luke's design. Perhaps Acts 9:19 should have been split in half since there is an obvious gap in between the Paul was in the home the time when Paul was in the home of Ananias and the time when he was with the other Christians of Damascus. And Luke says nothing about the time in Arabia which must have been In the interim, neither do we know how long Paul was in Arabia or why he went there. And we shall refrain from any speculation. Where Paul had written that I announce him among the nations, the nations. The use of the definite article indicates a reference to particular nations. And we see in Acts 9.15, the often mistranslated words of Joshua Christ, where Paul's commission is given in summary, and it says, For he is a vessel chosen by me, who is to bear my name before both the nations and kings of the sons of Israel, the nations of the sons of Israel, and the kings of the sons of Israel as the promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob go, that many nations would come of them and kings would come from their loins. In Romans chapter 4, Paul himself describes the nations of the promise of God in Christ as those nations actually descended from Abraham, where he says, in part, therefore, from of the faith, that in accordance with favor, then the promise is to be certain to all of the offspring, not to that of the law only, but also to that of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, just as it is written that a father of many nations I have made you, before Yahweh, whom he trusted, who raises the dead to life, and calls things not existing, those nations didn't exist yet, as existing, they existed by Paul's time. And Paul knew who they were. Who, contrary to expectation, in expectation believed, for which he would become a father of many nations, not spiritually, but according to the declaration. Thus your offspring will be. At Paul's time, only a small portion of the remnant of Israel in Jerusalem were of the law. While the lost sheep of the house of Israel remained of the fate of Abraham, which was Abraham's belief. In the promise of God that his offspring would indeed become many nations, the Romans, the Dorian Greeks, such as the Corinthians, and the Germanic Galatahi were all among those nations of the promise to Abraham. They all descended from Abraham's seed. So while Paul may have spent some time in Arabia, he is never recorded as as having established any churches there. And there were no subsequent travels in Arabia or any epistles to the Arabians. There's no gospel for sand niggers. Verse 18, Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to relate an account to Cephas. Cephas is the Hebrew form of the Greek word from which we get the name Peter. The Codex Bese and the majority text have Peter. The rest of the manuscripts have Cephas. And remained with him 15 days. But the other ambassadors I saw not, except Jacob the brother of the prince, popularly but incorrectly called James. The Greek word historio appears only here in the New Testament, and it means to inquire into a thing, to learn by inquiry, to examine, or to narrate what one has learned. So it is to relate an account here where the King James Version has only to see that Paul went up to Jerusalem to see Peter is selling short paul 's language he went up to Jerusalem to narrate what he'd learned to Peter, to relate an account to Peter of everything that he happened, everything that had happened to him and the revelation which he received. The noun Historia, the corresponding noun, is of course the root word of our English word, history. (laughs) Paul had left Damascus because his life had been threatened, as we may read in Acts chapter 9, Then he went to Jerusalem, where Luke records. And when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he assayed to join himself to the disciples. But they were all afraid of him, and believed not that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him, and brought him to the apostles, and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way, meaning the road to Damascus, and that he had spoken to him, and how he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. And he was with them, coming in and going out at Jerusalem. So here we learn that Paul's initial sojourn among the Christians at Damascus The account of which occupies only seven verses in Acts chapter 9, lasted for three years. Then, the account of Paul in Jerusalem, which occupies five verses of that chapter of Acts, spans only 15 days. We also learn that when Paul had gone to Jerusalem at this time, only Peter and James were there, out of all of the original apostles. This would not be more than four years after the stoning of Stephen. However, we shall discuss the chronology further and in more detail when we present Galatians chapter two, Yahweh willing. Verse 20 Now the things I write to you, behold in the presence of Yahweh that I do not lie, and ostensibly Paul would still have had many witnesses to his conduct in Jerusalem, as well as in Antioch and Damascus, as he wrote this this epistle. Verse 21, after that, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, And here Paul makes a reference to what Luke had also recorded in Acts of the time when he was still in Jerusalem where in Acts chapter 9 it is written and he spoke boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus and disputed against the Grecians meaning the Hellenists but they went about to slay him which when the brethren knew they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him forth to Tarsus so Paul says here, recalling the same events. After that, I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. Here, Paul makes—I'm sorry—Tarsus was the chief city of Cilicia. It often appears to be Cilicia in the in the English spellings. Cilicia was a province of Anatolia adjacent to Syria on the west, so it would be in the easternmost part of what we now unfortunately know as Turkey. What is not recorded anywhere, but which is evident in the general accounts given later in Acts, is that after his three years in Damascus and his visit to Jerusalem, while Paul was in Tarsus, he must have established christian assemblies there paul remained in tarsus from acts chapter 9 verse 30 until barnabas went to find him as it is recorded in acts chapter 11 verse 25 which covers an unspecified period of time during which peter had his vision and began to bring Israelites of the ancient dispersions to Christ, namely the Romans of the household of Cornelius. But Paul must have been converting so-called Gentiles during this same time, as we see later in Acts, in Acts chapter 15, that there are already Christians in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. And then, as it is recorded at the end of Acts chapter 15, Paul chose Silas and departed, being recommended by the brethren unto the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, confirming the assemblies or the churches. Those churches must have been, at least in great part, founded by Paul, as he traveled through Tarsus and Callicchia. In Acts chapters 9 to 11, where he sort of drops out of the picture until Barnabas goes to get him. Verse 22, Paul says, But I was unknown in appearance to the assemblies of Judea, which are among the number of the anointed, the Greek phrase, and Christo, may have simply been rendered in Christ. We have learned here, in verse 18, <clears throat> that Paul's sojourn in Jerusalem before he was sent off to Tarsus for his own protection, as it is recorded in Acts chapter 9, verse 30, was only 15 days. Therefore, it is very likely that, as he states here, most of the Christians in Judea had never seen Paul in person. And he says, And they were only hearing that he who, persecuting us at one time, is now announcing the faith which he once endeavored to destroy. And they supposed, Yahweh was within me. The King James Version has verse 24 to read, And they glorified God in me. Now, that's fine. The Greek word doxazo, Strong's number 1392, may well be to magnify or to extol, and so they have glorified. But the word is primarily to think or to imagine or to suppose. That's the primary meaning of the verb. And so it is supposed here. They supposed God was within me. In other words, the Christians of Judea imagined or supposed that Yahweh was indeed with Paul because of his sudden turnabout and his proclamation of Christ. That concludes and I'm sorry, I have a very dry throat tonight for some reason, and no water. That concludes our presentation of Galatians chapter 1. We will be here, Yahweh willing, next week with Galatians chapter 2, and possibly part of 3. Tomorrow night, honestly... I'm not sure yet what I'm going to present. I have three competing things in my head, and the program content will basically be which one of the three I feel like writing in the morning. Praise Yahweh, the God of Israel. Thank you for listening, and good night.